Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon and good evening, depending on your time zone. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're here with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And uh, in today's episode, it's it's sort of a very special one. We are going to actually talk a little bit about myth because uh, the theme is the ancient Maya. And as many of you know, and I think probably a number of you are actually motivated by this, the ancient Maya are irretrievably connected to the Mayan calendar and doomsday projections and the sort of fascinating information that's not necessarily truth, but certainly has a measure of fiction. And uh, what we're going to actually get into today is to talk about the actual archaeological data about the Maya and what is known about them. And uh, my guests today are Dr. Cheryl Luzader-Beach, and uh, Dr. Timothy Beach. Tim will join us a little bit later, but uh, Dr. Cheryl Luzader-Beach is on the phone right now, and she is professor in the Department of Geography and Geoinformation Sciences at George Mason U- University, where she currently directs the Ph.D. program in Earth Science and Geoinformation Sciences and is the Associate Chair and Academic Program Director of that uh, particular institution and program. Uh, Cheryl, welcome to the program. I'm glad to have you here. Well, good afternoon, Joe. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm delighted to be speaking coast-to-coast from my current home here in uh, northern Virginia and broadcasting back to my home state of California. I understand you are, in fact, a third-generation Californian. Uh, Yes, yes. Very interested in history. Let me begin, Cheryl, by asking you a little bit of about the, the Maya, Maya catastrophe myths and the calendar. Why don't you provide us a little bit of perspective on that, and then I'd like to get back into the hard data. Okay. Well, I would be happy to. Uh, the perspective I have to offer is as a geographer and an earth scientist who really uh, – uh, I'm, I'm not an expert on culture – but um, I do find it very interesting that people have, have pinned a lot of um, myth and belief to the, the Maya calendar and, and the, uh, the impending end of the calendar in December. Um, I, have, I have on the wall in my office actually a calendar that was produced by one of the uh, Maya projects in, uh, in Belize and was sent to me as a gift. And there's a, uh, there are two pages for December. Uh, the first page for December is a, a joke page where on December 20th it says end of the Maya fourth sun period. <laughs> on December 21st it says start of the Maya fifth sun period. Then there's nothing after that. And then luckily there's a real December after that that goes all the way to the 31st. So really for the ancient Maya this is, this is a changing of the calendar. It's a resetting at the end of 
end of a very long time counting period, and they're merely resetting and starting a new calendar. So I wouldn't worry too much about any catastrophes uh, associated with those particular dates and with the ancient Maya calendar. Where did this get started? It was just because it's a cycle, and uh, is there any basis in previous uh, archaeological history or archaeological recordation on this, or this is simply just a myth that got that, that evolved over time? I think it's just a myth that evolved over time. Again, that's not my area of scholarship, but um, it, it, as the closer we've gotten to the year 2012, just like approaching the year 1984 had some significance for people who like to read George Orwell, um, I think that um, people pin a lot on, on dates and times that appear in, in literature and myth and story over time. Interesting. Well, let's get back into your research, and I know you're basically utilizing a very strong geological background to look at Maya landscapes and Mayan environments, and I think uh, that I want to inform the audience that, uh, as we've mentioned in several episodes before, the transformation of environment and landscape are possibly among, if not the most important components that contemporary archaeologists look at in terms of trying to explain at least major elements of cultural change. And in order to understand how cultures and civilizations thrived flourished, declined, and eventually met their demise, we sort of have to understand environment. And Cheryl is is one of the leading proponents of that perspective and has done some groundbreaking research in that particular field in the Maya, in the Mayan environment. So Cheryl, why don't you tell us a little bit of what you're discovering about Maya subsistence systems, landscapes, and the types of changes that we're seeing in conjunction with uh, the the, the, the rise of the culture and, and, and sort of its uh, its progression. Okay, sure. Um, well, first of all, you men- uh, mentioned um, geologic uh, studies, and uh, geology also implies time and deep time. And um, the, the, the particular field that I and Tim Beach and others work in is called geoarchaeology. So we use the, the tools and uh, the perspectives of geosciences in studying archaeology, hand-in-hand with studying um, ancient culture and their relationship with the landscape. Um, Back to, just to tie back also with the calendar issue, um, the Maya, speaking of science, had a very sophisticated mathematical knowledge. They were able to compute huge numbers that really went even far beyond um, what their historical calendar says. So, um, again, the calendar issue uh, is merely the resetting of a, of a huge counting system, uh, but it does lead us into talking about geology and time and environmental change over time and, and the relationship of, of people to their environment. So uh, it also links in with this idea of catastrophism, and uh, if we, we worry that the world's going to end in 2012 because the calendar says so, uh, there's also been a lot of research and um, discussion about the Maya collapse and about the end of the classic Maya civilization. And so um, many scholars have been working for many, many years on trying to find um, evidence for the collapse to try and find um, reasons for the collapse and 
trying to see if the collapse really happened or not in some places or others. And and what the scholarship is finding is that the Maya collapse, uh, this rise and decline has really really happened over a very long period of time and um, punctuated in different places. So uh, it, it's not a, a, a passing and a disappearance of Maya society all of a sudden, but there, is, it, there are pockets of change. And many of those pockets of change do have very strong correlations with environmental change. But this is a complex society, and there are a lot of social, economic, and political and religious threads that also affect how people interact with each other and with the environment. So that's probably a very long answer um, about what the, the the core of the question is, but um, this is a, an area of scholarship that has continued for quite a long time. So our particular work has been to um, look at how the Maya interacted uh, with their land use in things like agriculture. How do they support their large populations given um, changing environmental bases, given uh, Maya drought or drought occurring during um, during the classic Maya period? Uh, how do they deal with deforestation? How do they deal with soil erosion? And um, looking at, at things like uh, erosion control structures and conservation efforts and in, in the case of agriculture, uh, digging ditches to deliver irrigation water. So um, we're really we're looking at how the Maya lived as much as we're lo- trying to figure out why and how uh, Maya society declined. Let's let's put this in some kind of a chronological perspective, Cheryl. Let's let's talk about dates and time frames, mm-hmm. and uh, as well as looking at, for example, how the Maya flourished and declined. Let's talk about their beginnings. What are mm-hmm. we talking about in terms of the time frame, and what kind of landscapes and environments did did, did this all start out in? Well, um, there are a couple of main periods that um, we have written about, and um, there's, for instance. Uh, at one of our sites, there's uh, the Maya Archaic period, and so we we have um, uh, evidence dating back to about 4,000 years before present, or 2050 um, BC, uh, in in our particular study site in northern Belize. So this is a very very long time. This is 4,000 years ago, as uh, the Archaic period. But then uh, we move to the Maya Preclassic period in this. In the zone, and here, um, that's about 2,300 years ago, or 350 BC. Um, moving forward to uh, the late preclassic through the classic periods, so what's called the late preclassic period in Maya times is about 2,000 years ago, and then the classic period runs um, up until about 950 AD. So we're, we're talking about events that happened between 4,000 years ago and 1,000 years ago. A 3,000-year window in which all of these events occurred and which a major uh, culture sort of took off, peaked, and then died down. So let's, let's, yeah. uh, let's, let's start with the beginning. Let's, uh, what, are the, what were the landscapes like 4,000 years ago when the Maya first sort of made their imprint on, uh, on, on the new, in the New World. Let's talk about that first. Okay. Um, well, I'll focus on the landscapes that I've studied. And um, when, when 
my co-PI, Tim Beach, joins us at around 6.30. He'll talk a lot more about the the um, sedimentological and, and the geological basis behind this this discussion. But just in general, um, where we're working is in northwestern Belize. We've also done some work in, in Yucatan, Mexico, and also in Guatemala. But from the perspective of working in northwestern Belize, uh, we have a landscape that combines two uh, different geographical settings. One is a low coastal plain, and uh, it has uh, groundwater underneath it and springs that, that bring forth that groundwater, and it had a stable growing surface, a stable soil. And again, um, Tim Beach will discuss more of this um, sedimentological um, evidence. So there's this evidence of a stable growing surface, a beautiful soil, um, that was not waterlogged, just a really nice place to have agriculture. Um, the upland portion of this site, there's a, there's a fault that runs north-south through um, the, almost the border between Belize and Guatemala, and there's an upland portion. It's an uplifted portion of um, limestone, and there's, it, it's covered in rainforest, and um, it, too, has groundwater, it has some surface water flowing, um, so it's a very nice, pristine, if you will, uh, landscape with um, water resources available and soil resources available. So um, it was a, a pretty productive, I could say, uh, agricultural landscape that people had to start with. Um, as population grew uh, and, and cities are built and land is cleared, then um, Trees are cleared, and you begin to have problems with, just like any urban place um, and, and any uh, agricultural zone, problems with soil erosion and sedimentation and, and runoff. And so you're changing the landscape as you continue to develop your landscape. Um, we're going to take. We're going to have to take a break here, Cheryl. Sure. But we will be back very shortly, and we will get back into discussing the onset of Maya Maya civilization and agricultural practices after these words. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We are back on uh, our present program on the Maya, the emergence, the growth, and the eventual decline of the Maya civilization, and we are speaking with Dr. Cheryl Luzutter-Beach, and we will be joined shortly by her husband and co-principal investigator in these investigations in the Mayan heartland, uh, Timothy Beach, uh, very shortly. But uh, Cheryl was talking to us about the preconditions, if you will, the environmental preconditions that gave rise to the Mayan landscapes, to the agriculture, and to the environments in which agriculture flourished around 4,000 years ago. And and one of the key elements here, as in any other cultural area in which agriculture emerges and in which people and settlements are able to take root, is the management of water and the situation of water zonation prior to management of water. So, so Cheryl, I know this is one of your major, major strengths and one of the areas in which you've really focused uh, extensively in your research. Tell us about water and the Maya. Okay. Um, well, 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 water wells. Uh, water and the Maya um, are very closely linked together in um, in their their culture and their uh, worldview, if you will. Um, caves and springs and groundwater are sacred in in the ancient Maya world. So, um, for instance, in uh, Yucatan. Um, that's the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, where the Maya also lived. Uh, there, you can visit caves. There are uh, state national parks there where you can visit caves and see where the ancient Maya have placed um, ceramic vessels in the caves to catch drips of this sacred groundwater. And the sacred groundwater is full of so much mineral that these these drips form what are what are called um, speleothems or cave forms. And so they be, become columns of, of mineral that they've been there for so long, they link the ceiling of the cave with the ceramics on the floor. So water is very important in ancient Maya culture. Um, I've been studying water in um, northwestern Belize and in Mexico and in Guatemala in the context of these archaeological sites. Um, when, when people study settlement in archaeology, they often look to the resource base to see if they can explain the why of where. Geography is the why of where, for instance. And to um, see if people settle in a particular place because of good water, good soil, uh, good view, good breeze, good ground. And um, water is definitely an important element in that. Um, our, our settlers in northwestern Belize... Um, around the sites of La Milpa and Blue Creek, for instance, um, 
had um, surface water available. So the Rio Bravo is one of the rivers that runs through that zone. The uh, Rio Azul, which becomes Blue Creek, uh, also runs through that zone. And in fact, this whole area where Guatemala and Mexico and Belize come together is called the Three Rivers region. So surface water is definitely an important resource to the people there. The water in this um, upland area has very good quality. It's good for drinking. Um, it's good for agriculture. Uh, we've done a study um, uh, published in um, the Journal of Ethnobiology that um, looked at the quality of the water there and what possible crops could be supported with um, the water quality around the site. So we've, we've tried to take a modern land and water use approach to looking at the resource base for the ancient Maya in this area. Now that said, uh, and again I mentioned this is in a, a, a fault zone, which Californians would know fault zones in terms of the San Andreas Fault running uh, up the western side of California. and. Uh, People on the East Coast are learning more about faults. We mentioned this over the break because of uh, right. the, the earthquake last last summer that affected uh, Northern Virginia and shook us up here. Uh, but the, this North-South Fault kind of divides the landscape between good water and bad water as well. So um, a fault is a, a rift in the land. And these are uh, limestone, like Florida is made of limestone uh, landscapes, and so it splits um, into very nice straight cracks. And, and in this split zone, this rift zone, the water up top is good. The water down below in the wetlands currently is not good. It has very high mineral content and it's quite injurious to crops. So the Maya have this um, variety of water quality types available to them and this really is going to affect what they're going to do in their land and water use decisions. People really hadn't started looking at the, the quality, the chemistry of the water um, very much in this context, in this zone, um, before we started working on this project in northwestern Belize. So what you're telling us really is that with your approach in which you're looking at the quality of the water, mm -hmm. you're able to start to understand how people were able to actually exploit the different types of water, for lack of a better expression, mm -hmm. and to effectively their under their knowledge of that the different qualities of water and the zonation of that water help to dictate how they plan their agricultural cycles and in fact the types of subsistence resources that they eventually exploited yeah i think that would be fair to say um, people learn you know we didn't have an ancient mile ancient mile water chemists as far as we know um, sure. but people learn from trial and error uh, with trying crops growing here and there and they know as much about the rest of the resource base, so uh, it would make sense that they would learn about the water. And you can learn about the difference in the waters just by drinking these two, and I wouldn't recommend it today, but right. by drinking the, the two different water sources, uh, one would have a very obvious, in, in the case of our wetland waters, sulfuric flavor. You can smell it. You don't even have to taste it. So uh, instinctively, you would suspect that water to be of lesser quality. Um, so they had this, this difference in waters um, available. Now, the, the wetlands, which are in the lower coastal plain that reaches out from the base of this fault zone or escarpment out to the Caribbean Sea, has the groundwater table is very high now. Uh, it doesn't take very far. You could dig down maybe uh, a meter or a yard 
and, and hit water in some of these places. And it's very sensitive to sea level rise, sea level change. Um, so other researchers who've been studying sea level rise in the Caribbean have um, noted that and have evidence that the sea level has been steadily rising also over the last 3,000 years. When sea level rises, it takes the groundwater table up with it. So the Maya who were farming down in these wetland areas, or what became wetland areas, had to contend with water logging, which is what modern farmers are having to contend with in those areas today in order to deal with waterlogged fields with not so great quality of water. You dig a ditch, you drain it out, you build an elevated place to plant your crops and depend on um, rainfall to kind of uh, mitigate that poor water quality. So what you're doing here then is is uh, you're f- effectively trying to manage the resource by being sensitive to the rise in the groundwater level. And I suspect that what's happening here is that is eventually giving rise to some sort of irrigation agriculture or diversionary um, water structures that mm-hmm. will move water around and distribute it in the way that's most economically feasible and, and, and which will be provide the uh, the most productive agricultural scenario that you can get. Oh, absolutely. And um, economic feasibility is a really important key word. Um, th- and and I'll, I'll come back to the, the structures. But there is a, an article that was um, just published by Dr. Billy Lee Turner and um, Dr. Uh, Jeremy Sabloff in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that talks about those economic considerations at the time of the collapse. And maybe it was possible to reoccupy a place, but it may not have made simply economic sense to reoccupy and and rebuild in a place. So there are really so many dimensions of the decisions that um, ancient farmers made. We we should um, think about what modern farmers also have to contend with and, and use that as well in our, in our thoughts about ancient farmers. So, um, all over the Maya world, as I said, water was a sacred thing to the ancient Maya. There are, um, uh, waterworks, I'll say. There are architectural features that control water. Many of the ones uh, we we see and are aware of are when we visit the urban centers, like the city of Tikal in Guatemala. Um, uh, Professor Vernon Scarborough and others have also just published uh, an article on water and sustainable land use in Tikal, uh, talking about um, storage tanks, about dams, about diversions, about um, uh, something called chaltoons, which are these water storage tanks that plazas drain excess water to so you can save water through the dry season. So Would the cities you, yeah, were just architecturally water worlds. Right. And and they were largely designed and modified with respect to the available water conditions and to the perceptions that the populations had mm-hmm. as to how to manage that water resource. Oh, yes. Um, and, and many of the, the the architectural details are just celebrations of water. Um, there, there's a an ancient Maya god called Chak, and Chak has a nose like an elephant. And there are some buildings in, in ancient Maya cities that have just rows of these um, Little, little chalk masks running down the side of the building. When it rains, the water flows from snout to snout 
on these um, rather rather remarkable architectural details, just like we have you know gargoyles on cathedrals today. Um, here's another celebration of water in the landscape. And so again, it's it just becomes so pivotal to understanding mm-hmm. the culture in general that it's it, it's just a major issue. Absolutely. Um, if we look at some of the the ancient Maya settlements in um, the northern Yucatan Peninsula, which is uh, north of Belize, it's um, that peninsula that sticks up in the Gulf of Mexico, that part of Mexico. Uh, those settlements had much less in the way of surface water supplies. They depended much more heavily, as they do today, on groundwater supplies, digging wells and accessing water. Um, those communities as well had um, would ha- see an effect of sea level rise in that their groundwater uh, tables were, were driven upward as well, although um, the you know water chemistry varies from place to place, so it's not the same... Um, extreme situation that we're finding in the formation of the wetlands in Belize, um, there's still evidence in terms of how the wells were constructed, how deep they go, whether there's a little lip for turning a water jar and how deep that is as, as uh, archaeological evidence for um, how people engineered their access to water. And, and so groundwater there was essential. If, if you didn't have groundwater, um, you would have to catch rainwater on the plaza of your city and drain it into storage for um, dry season use. And on that note, we'll go back to break and uh, we will return shortly and continue our fascinating discussion on water resources and the emergence, uh, fluorescence and decline of the Maya civilization. We'll be back after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. On America's front lines of crime and war with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune in to On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. 
The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Um, I would uh, like to encourage people to correspond with us through the social networks on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, please feel free, provide your comments. We've been getting them over the course of the program and at various points uh, during the week when, uh, when we're not broadcasting. I'd like to bring into this program on Maya geology, archaeology, and landscape change uh, Dr. Tim Beach who is the uh, spouse of uh, Cheryl Luz- Dr. Cheryl Luzader Beach Tim is uh holds the uh, Cinco Hermanos Chair in Environment and International Affairs and is a professor of geography and geoscience at Georgetown University. Tim is the director of Georgetown's program in science, technology, and international affairs and former head of its Center for Environment. Tim, thanks so much for joining the discussion. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. Tim, one of the things that is uh, certainly a strong point of yours, and, and, and I think it will complement what we've been discussing before with Cheryl, is, is sort of the changing situation of water availability and how it impacted Maya landscapes. And, and as a geomorphologist and a scholar who looks at changing natural versus human-impacted uh processes that that have transformed the landscape why don't you talk to us a little bit about how human activity and human perception started to effectively uh change the way in which um the mayans modified their landscape and 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 sort of changed their perception of, of how this landscape was as a dynamic entity well if you look at the long history of the maya period going back from um, before 3,000 years ago, you saw people that were coming into landscapes and using them in ways they knew how. They were starting agriculture from around 4,000 to 3,000 years ago, and they were around wetlands as they were starting this agriculture. Those were places that had plenty of irrigation water and good soils. And um, as they did that, it was a kind of a piecemeal, smaller-scale agriculture. And we have lots of evidence for that from our multiple tools like pollen analysis and other kinds of analyses like that that show this kind of early development. And they were doing this also in a period of environmental change, too, because what was still going on around these regions where the wetlands were rising because sea levels were rising and sea levels were pushing uh, the seas inland. And that was changing where these pre-Maya and Maya people could live. And 
they were living in certain places and nearby were other people um, and you couldn't just move with sea level rise so you had to kind of respond to it and what we think is, is a very early adaptation response to environmental change by the Maya was to try to build canals and build up fields so they could continue to grow crops right around these rising waters and this is actually we think a very um, a very good way that they responded to that in a very successful way uh, very early on. This, and this was a fairly large part of Maya civilization that was around these coasts. It, it's oftentimes not the most um, best-known parts of Maya civilization, like Tikal with its giant temples. But these were areas that were very productive, and these were you know, heartlands in the sense the breadbaskets of, of Maya world for their areas and probably for areas beyond as well. So very much part of the picture of Maya civilization was one of adaptation to growing enough foods for growing populations over time, and they were very resilient. So what you're looking at here really is uh, within this 3,000-year window, say, of, of, of Mayan uh, development and, and ultimate decline, you're looking at, obviously, as you said, you know, the, the parallel trends of rising water tables, uh, sea level rise, encroachment of the sea landward, and presumably you're having some kind of a variability in terms of how these settlements relate to each other. You're getting uh, some inland settlements and you're getting these coastal settlements. How do those interface and, and is there any kind of a network between them? And, and, and uh, how dynamic was the landscape at that time when, you, when you're having uh, a spread of populations both along the coast and, and into the interior? How is that working? Well, that we have good evidence for that from a lot of different sources. The main evidence are the kind of sources that stay in archaeological landscapes a long time, and like lithics or rocks, uh, especially obsidian, and other kinds of materials that people are trading. And these stone these, tools, yeah, tools, and these tools are being traded from hundreds of miles away very early on. Even by three thousand years ago, you're beginning to see this trade of obsidian a hundred or more miles from their sources of origin. And, and it's clear that you, you, know, you needed a very sharp object, and obsidian was an extremely sharp one, and it was the best tool you could get. And in fact, it's even sharper than steel still today. It just breaks down too quickly. Um, but they also had other kinds of um, materials like chirts that were more local, um, but they still used these more distant kind of obsidians because they were so useful. So trade, trade and movements um, are very early in Central American civilization. Uh, some other things that were traded very early on were jades. Jades are not, uh, in most cases, a, a, a useful thing in terms of cutting something that you had to, to make a food out of or for agricultural reasons, but rather for ornamentation. And they were very strongly part of early Mesoamerican societies like the Olmec and the very early Maya by earlier than 3,000 years ago. And those were traded hundreds of miles again. Um, in some cases, fairly large objects. And uh, when you start adding up the total amount of material at these different sites, you could see that they were very, very dynamic trade routes running through this whole region of Mesoamerica. So was this uh, – when, when did the trade actually peak? When was well, the, the trade peak network? in most cases, if we look at um, most aspects of Maya civilization, um, we, we have what we call pre-Maya civilization. People use the term archaic before right. around 3,000 years ago. 
And oftentimes it's not considered Maya because it's not associated with things that we directly relate to the artifacts of Maya civilization, but there certainly were people there who were related to people who came later. And then they had a pre-classic period that went from about 3,000 years ago to around 250 years, uh, uh, around 250 AD, so it went for about 1,200 years or so. And then the peak of the civilization in terms of trade, in terms of agricultural development, in terms of population, in, in terms of new foods and complex different food systems was in the classic period after about 250 AD until around 900 or so AD. And this is the so-called Maya classic, the, the highest point of, of the civilization with when so many of the great temples that perhaps people have read about before were built. Um, the great temples at Tikal and Chichen Itza um, and at Ushmal and at Karakal and uh, dozens and dozens of other sites. Um, by that time period, by, say, the middle of that, uh, the late middle portion of that late classic period, say 600 or 700 A.D., there were hundreds of smaller sites and, and, and still many large sites that had large temples that were 20, 25, 30-plus meters high um, that covered pretty large areas as well. And so that's that's the peak of that civilization in terms of trade, in terms of building, although early on even there's lots of evidence for some early extensive building in the late pre-classic after around 300 or so BC, you start getting large temples at places like Mirador um, in a place that now is completely covered by thick tropical forest. It's an amazing thing to, to fly over mm -hmm. many of these places and see this thick tropical forest over these gigantic temples. Um, and it's one of the, the great things that have driven interest and fascination in the Maya from the beginning. But, that, but the real peak occurs later, although it, what's interesting about it is how long things are Maya for a thousand years or so before that peak uh, occurs. And during that peak... Not only is there this peak in trade, but there's a peak in all sorts of different agricultural intensification where we get a massive number of terraces for agriculture built around the Maya lowlands, and we start getting these uh, wetland fields that uh, Cheryl and I have been working on now for over a decade, and these things are quite extensive. Um, in many different areas. And then there's a whole, what we've often referred to as a whole mosaic of different types of farming systems to feed these vast populations. And what we're finding out further is that by the time you get to the late classic, there are lots of different foods too. The usual um, uh, great three foods of Mesoamerica of, of, of beans, corns, and squash has many other things added to it as well um, by the time you're in the late period. And, um, so it's a really complicated society with lots of trade, lots of people, uh, especially during that classic period. And uh, we will be back and discuss the uh, fluorescence of the Maya civilization during the peak years when we get back after these messages. Thank you. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. 
We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story, coming to the U.S. with no language founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back, and uh, we are talking about the fluorescence of the Mayan civilization with two prominent scholars in the area, Dr. Timothy Beach and Dr. Cheryl Luzader Beach, uh, both of whom have worked extensively in the Mayan heartland in, and in various portions of that heartland. Tim was talking previously about the classic Maya civilization and the growth of populations, the stabilization of agricultural systems, and uh, really a, a culture that was, was uh, left a very, very strong imprint on North America, Central America, and, and carried over very extensively into North and South into, into the New World. Um, Cheryl had been talking earlier about water and the uh, perception that the Mayans had about how to maintain and mobilize water and to make it work in their favor. Cheryl, I'd like to get back to you on that. During the classic Maya period, presumably there was a period of environmental stabilization and there was a period during which I would assume that the engineering of water resources was something that the Mayans sort of put to work in their behalf. How did that, how did that translate actually into irrigation, stabilization of agricultural landscapes and so forth? How, how do you see the water budget at that particular point in time? Well, um, I see the water budget uh, in, indeed in terms of um, stabilization and uh, dealing with the environment that you have because by that point uh, we do have, yes, extensive wetland agriculture, but there's also a high cost to having canals and fields because when canals get flooded annually, uh, they accumulate sediment and you have to keep maintaining those canals by cleaning them out and, and uh, making sure that water will continue to flow in the way in which they were engineered. Um, 
So there's a, a, a tremendous input of human capital, uh, this, again, the economy question, that goes into maintaining uh, this water delivery system. Uh, the other elements, besides rising water tables connected to rising sea levels, that the um, classic Maya then had to contend with in the late classic uh, would have been uh, uh, drought. Uh, so as, as water supply uh, shifts, and changes, then um, the Maya have to um, sh- shift with that as well. So uh, water storage becomes uh, very important. Uh, we're talking about a place that, yes, it's tropical, but it's in um, the northern edge of the tropics. It's in a, a zone that has a distinct dry season. So year-to-year lack of water, seasonal lack of water, the Maya were prepared for that. And certainly there's some infrastructure then that would deal with storing rainwater for a dry period that would also help uh, perhaps in a period of of drought to a certain point. Um, But then when you have um, other infrastructure like in the interior of, of the Yucatan Peninsula that may depend more heavily on wells and when water tables drop, because of the lack of rainfall and the great distance from the sea level is not going to help uh, bring the water table up, then you have the question, is it uh, economic to go back and reoccupy this place or to dig any more wells, or do we move on to a place that has a better water supply? So when you begin to put other environmental change into the picture, you begin to start to tip that balance um, and, and when all of those things add up to uh, not being economically feasible, then you, you change your system. The ancient wetland fields obviously had a lot of investment, and they persisted all the way up until the end. Um, we've, we find through studying the sediments, and Tim can add more about the sedimentological record, uh, studying the sediments of the maintenance of those canals, that when the, the rest of the major um, uh, collapse occurs in a, a number of places. The wetlands, which you would think would be the most protected by having uh, the most reliable water source from groundwater, they too stop being maintained. So the Maya made some management decision um, at that point that it was no longer feasible. So, so let's bring this back to the $64,000 question. I want to get your input for, on this, Tim. Uh, was there a threshold environmental change or was there a, some kind of a cultural change that sort of tipped the balance between sort of peak Mayan economies, keep peak subsistence systems, and a sort of a trajectory towards decline? Is there any way we can isolate that? Do we know enough about the systems to understand what might have triggered it? You know, that's a, that is a $64,000 question, and it's a fascinating one, um, because what you see in this late classic period, you know, from around 550 or so to around 850, is this remarkable um, fluorescence of agriculture. And uh, so I mentioned before the terraces, I mentioned these agricultural wetland fields. But also one thing I should mention is that more and more reservoirs are being built. Um, The great site of Tikal has a whole series of incredible groups of reservoirs um, to feed that system, and that developed during that time period. There are earlier antecedents to that, too. Cheryl and I, in fact, have been excavating um, reservoirs at a place called Zotes, as well as mm-hmm. over where we've been working in Belize. And what you see is just about all these sites either have reservoirs or they have um, water storage systems. 
And so exactly what Cheryl was saying before is that to live in those areas, you had to have water. But what, what it amounts to more than anything is just this, what we sometimes um, refer to as this uh, land-esque capital um, improvements that are occurring. And as such, the economic um, infrastructural development is so impressive during that time period. But it does, as we say, in the central Maya lowlands um, in the ninth century begin to unravel. Um, now, getting at the drivers, the $64,000 question drivers, um, there have been a lot of different hypotheses to explain that. But I have to say that I think we're still in a situation where we may not have enough information to say it's one thing or another. There's almost no question now that there was a significant ongoing dry period during that coincides with that period. It starts very early, and it starts right about the time you start seeing the unraveling and the movement of, of city-states. And uh, it's quite a breakthrough in science for us to be able to identify this, these droughts, these dry periods so well. And in the past, people had thought, well, it's, it's environmental degradation. It's a population overshoot. The population got too high, and a drought came along, and this was the coup de grace of this particular um, civilization because a combination of things came together. But I, I, I don't know that we can say that. In fact, I don't think we can. We know there's a drought. We know there was environmental degradation because a lot of these lakes and reservoirs are filling in with sediment, and erosion is occurring very high. But what's interesting about that erosion is most of it actually occurred in the early part of the civilization, in the pre-classic period. There was still erosion later, but they had built the terraces and they had built so many other kind of structures and systems in this humanized landscape that now was functioning very well that erosion actually declined as more and more productivity occurred. So... What we're seeing here is still a strong conundrum um, about what caused this collapse. And, and, and I have to say that we oftentimes don't like to use the word collapse within the, our actual fields because it indicates something that's, you know, is too abrupt, that took a long period to occur, and it was a transition uh, movement out of the central Maya lowlands that Cheryl was talking about before, uh, where the population moved out from that had been the heart of the civilization, which makes it such an interesting question. You know, this was the heart, but they're no, no longer here. But these people are now in the north, and they're on the on the east and west sides of these places, um, and their population seems to be more disbanded and not as concentrated in areas. In the past, we'd always said, well, the population must have dropped by 90%. But a lot of a lot of people now think that, well, maybe it drops dropped, but maybe a lot of these people are really living not in particularly high points, not in cities, but in, in broader areas, and maybe the population didn't decline that much. And when I keep saying these terms of maybe and possibly and conundrum, I still think we're at a period where we can't say one thing or another, and that's one of the things that we've been working on with a larger group is to try to bring all this together in modeling, to try mm -hmm. to model all of these things together to see how the models would work together with different lines of evidence that might um, might indicate things that we hadn't thought about before. You know, the breakdown of trade networks at certain times, um, political events that pulled the center of gravity in one direction or another rather than some either environmental degradation explanation for it or even a drought explanation for it. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up. Uh, we'll probably 
engage in another discussion somewhere down the road with a focus on the Maya collapse, if you want to call it that again. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that a lot of archaeologists like to use as sort of a simplistic term. But I want to thank uh, Tim Beach and Cheryl Luzader Beach for their participation and providing these incredible insights on what's going on in the world of Mayan archaeology. And uh, we look forward to hearing about their research going forward. And thanks so much for participating. And uh, thank you to the listenership for listening. And we will be back next week at this time with another episode of our program. Thanks so much and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.